Alright, uh, welcome to the Cold Pizza Party Podcast. I am Adam. I'm Libizza. Go on. <laughs> you go on. Me? What am I supposed to say? I'm uh, just intro the, what our topic. This are. is the intro to the podcast. <laughs> We're yeah. going to talk about uh, the Democratic debate, which was Saturday for some reason. For some reason it's on a weekend. And uh, uh, what else did we talk about that we recorded already? <laughs> Uh, abortion and TV. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to discuss after reading an article on Bitch uh, Magazine, and I forget what the article's called, but we'll link to it um, on the Facebook page, so I'm sure you'll be able to tell. Or just read all of Bitch Magazine. It's not a bad idea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so the article talks specifically about some new research, which we'll get into, but I wanted to talk more broadly um, about... Uh, abortion on television and um, sort of how it's depicted and what some of the implications are of of that depiction. So, um, you know, first, like when I think about the way that abortion is depicted on television, um, my most common experience is that it will... Um, there'll be an unexpected pregnancy on a television show. The um, person who's pregnant will, you know, with a friend or their parent or whoever, um, discuss the various possible options, which inevitably in- include abortion. Um, She's probably a teenager, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then ultimately... They will choose to keep the baby and it will be like an unexpected bundle of joy in the end, right? Like um, it is usually like there's a nod to the idea that like, yeah, of course women have a choice, but then that choice is never made, at least when I watch television. And like Mindy Project, you know, I love Mindy Project. Um, but basically she gets pregnant unexpectedly with her boyfriend's baby and it's like, oh, what are we going to do? Well, I guess I'm going to keep it, you know? And then it turns into an unexpected bundle of joy that brings her and her boyfriend even closer together. And now they're going to get married, you know, which is, I think, one of the other aspects of these storylines is that usually um, they'll like the the person won't discuss it with their partner, but then they'll uh, choose to keep the baby. And then over the course of the nine months, they'll grow the the woman and the partner will grow closer and closer together, which is like um, this weird fairy tale that they're selling to uh, women with unwanted pregnancies that I think is like quite dangerous. Um Especially because uh, we used to watch like Teen Mom a lot and I don't like really have the stomach to watch it anymore because it's just gotten sadder and sadder. But a lot of times the girls on those shows will explicitly say that they kept the baby because they thought it was going to keep the relationship together, their teenage relationship. Yeah. Uh, so and it's like I, I used to think like, where did they get that idea? And now it's like maybe from television. Yeah, the male character on TV and stuff will usually be like, oh, I'm okay with whatever you want, which implicitly means if you want to keep the baby, I'm, you know, there for that. Yeah. And we'll take care of you and it. Yeah. Um, 
but surprise that's not how it works out it's like he's he's like accepting that it's the woman's choice and it's her body but you know she'll choose to keep the baby and he'll support that choice yeah 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 again it's like a nod to the idea that you have a choice yeah but then but there's one one right there's one right choice exactly exactly this study that I'm talking about, uh, I guess it was researchers at Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health, which is an organ. Sounds like a cool organization to me. Um, but they looked at how abortion was represented um, on TV from 2005 through 2014, and they uh, looked at 78 different um, plot lines, and uh, they found that 40. Um, had a character who obtained an abortion, which to me was like a real surprise. Uh, again, because I feel like I never catch those TV shows where the, the person actually makes the choice to get an abortion. I mean, in Secret Life of the American Teenager, that's what launches the whole show is that she makes she gets pregnant after having sex one time and decides to like keep the baby um, when obviously like as like i forget if she, she might honestly be like 14 or something when she gets pregnant yeah. like you know that's not a good i don't know I, I guess it's hard to make a judgment call but it seems like a 14 year old should probably make the choice not to give birth <laughs> yeah if you've never seen that show you might want to check it out a little bit just out of morbid curiosity it's like the main character is this surly teen girl and the theme is like she's constantly making mistakes including having sex and having to face the consequences like having a baby yeah, yeah. it's really moralistic and weird what yeah. about jane the virgin she never has sex and she gets pregnant and she decides yeah. to keep the baby they like talk about abortion in jane the virgin but i mean she is a virgin because she's so catholic mm-hmm. so it's like pretty clear that in that like it, it runs true to that character yeah. that she wouldn't really want to have an abortion but they do actually mention it as an option and like discuss it very briefly and it's not like oh this would be heinous i mean her like really devout catholic grandma is like not into it at all but her mom is like look you could like make this choice and you wouldn't be a bad person basically so yeah there are some uh times when it's like discussed as a reasonable option but um i don't know like i say i was really surprised that apparently they found um characters getting an abortion in 51% of these 78 uh, plot lines. I was wondering if maybe some of them were um, like like Law and Order episodes where uh, the girl gets raped or whatever. Uh, and then that's like, I think, the only time TV sees it as like morally justifiable to um, get an abortion, for a character to get an abortion. And I know that um, when I read through this a little bit more, they mentioned that um, a lot of the characters who were getting abortions tended to be like periphery characters. So I was also wondering if it was um, maybe TV shows where it's like a like story of the week situation, mm-hmm. you know, where a character comes in and they have a drug, an alcohol problem, and then it teaches all the other characters a lesson about it. Like I feel like that used to happen sometimes on like Dawson's Creek mm-hmm. or whatever. So maybe some of that uh, is, is where they're finding that. And it's not like major characters in these TV shows getting abortions because i have never seen that so in general the study found that characters who considered abortion were mostly white young in committed relationships and not parenting um and they also found that when comparing all abortion 
uh, characters in these TV shows to the subset of abortion obtaining characters, uh, meaning characters who got abortions, obviously. The higher rates of abortion were found for characters who were white, of lower socioeconomic status, and not in committed relationships. Um, so I thought that was really interesting because uh, it kind of suggests that, um, you know, if you're white and middle class and in a relationship, TV thinks you should probably keep the baby, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's only if you're like not in a relationship or poor yeah. that you're uh, that it's acceptable. It's to promoting the idea that abortion is like a last resort for people who are just like too poor or yeah. teenagers to take care of a baby. Yeah, exactly. In fact, um, it 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 tended to overrepresent. Like I I remember reading that um, it tended to overrepresent white women. Most of the women getting abortions on television, for whatever reason, are white women. Um, whereas it, that is it is like a majority of abortion um, of women getting abortions are white, but they're also like a majority of the population. Uh, and there is a you know I think it was like twenty five percent african-american women and somewhere close to that um for latina women uh but they found like no instance in which a latina woman was shown getting an abortion on television so i thought that was really interesting because that's because they're all super religious breeders (laughs) i mean that's apparently what they think because if you um you know can you I, i i can't imagine being like a young um latina maybe a teenager or young woman who you know finds herself in a position where you need to get an abortion if you you know have internalized some of the television that you see you would think oh that's not something i'm supposed to do that's not something we do right that's not something that my culture is okay with which might not even be true that might just be the perception of your culture that writers writing television have of your culture you know I don't know if that was totally clear, but I think you know what I meant. The other thing that was um, really overrepresented was that um, more often the reasons were uh, that a character gets an abortion are self-focused, like wanting to continue education or um, not interrupt career goals. Whereas in um, real cases, like when women are actually asked, their reasons tend to be um, other focused. So like more than half of women um, who have had abortions are already mothers when they make the decision. When women are asked why they decided to terminate their pregnancy, three-fourths cited their responsibility to other individuals. Three-fourths said they couldn't afford a child. Three-fourths said having a baby would interfere with work, school, or their ability to care for dependents. And half said they, would, they didn't want to be a single parent or were having problems with their partner. So a lot of those reasons are very other focused, but television tends to, again, like they'll show a young, you know, middle class woman who's like about to go off to college and she can't have that ruined by uh, an unwanted pregnancy, which is totally illegitimate, by the way. But um, again, it suggests this idea that that abortion is more of a want rather than a need. And for a lot of women, it's a real need. Like if you are a single mother, you know, working minimum wage and you've already got two kids or one kid or whatever, you know, it's like a, you have a real need because you can't, you're actually jeopardizing like the well-being of your other children by bringing another baby, the medical bills, the food, the diaper, you know, I mean, all this, all these costs into the equation. Um, 
so I thought that was really interesting about uh, TV and, and kind of its portrayal from a like academic study kind of way. Maybe the reason it's um, shown to be more acceptable on TV when you like sacrifice having a child for your career is that that's what we're supposed to want as a career and uh, to be like high performing in our careers. Yeah, definitely. It's like when Peggy gives up her baby to her family in Mad Men. It's like understandable because she is in such a precarious position yeah, with her career. And she's just about to have this burgeoning career that could make her life so much more interesting. Yeah. And why should she be locked down with a baby, right? Yeah. But it's even like her career is like a heroic journey yeah. in Mad Men because yeah, she has to overcome so much. And Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I actually um, personally suspect like three reasons for, I was thinking this through obviously earlier, um, for why this might be. Um, and I think like we really have to consider who's behind the TV shows, which is oftentimes writers and a lot of times um, male writers tend to be head writers and in positions like showrunner. Um, and so that obviously impacts what kind of stories get told i think first of all like male writers maybe don't understand how like truly life-changing and like body altering it is to get pregnant and a lot of times i feel like unwanted pregnancies get thrown in to just like spice up the tv show a little bit you know <laughs> uh so it's i mean obviously like a pregnancy in any tv show is a, a plot line it can move things forward and so I think there's like a certain incentive to want to like throw that in sometimes without like seriously considering why female characters would want to be like very, very careful actually about when they get pregnant, just like real life women. And then the second thing that I was thinking of was, yeah, that babies in pregnancy move a plot line forward. And by contrast, abortions obviously shut down that plot line. So, you know, if you've just built up this sort of tension of the unwanted pregnancy and what's going to happen with the boyfriend and will they, won't they, if you just take this option of having the abortion, then that would like really shut down the storylines that for in some cases that maybe that's why. Uh, they avoid the abortion. Sometimes shows have real inertia, though, and they don't want to change anything. Yeah. So I I could see how a writer might prefer to bring up a plot line about getting pregnant and then have an abortion because you don't have to, you know, change anything. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. I agree. But that's why they have the miscarriage trope. Oh, yeah. You see? Because then you can easily... Uh, absolve a character you know it's not her fault she's not a bad person it's just that her body rejected the pregnancy or it just didn't take or whatever and so we don't have to feel bad about it um and so uh there's there's a lot of tv shows that that basically use that um i guess like girls did it pretty recently uh where the the sort of nomadic Jess, Jessa is that her name the blonde so. girl um she gets pregnant and then she has really mixed feelings about going to get an abortion but she her friends like take her to the or she makes an appointment and then she doesn't show up at the clinic and then later she's at a bar drinking white russians and she seduces a guy and then she goes to the bathroom and she's miscarried so it's like totally absolves the character of uh, even though a lot of um, the articles I read also mentioned that in in that episode they said abortion like more than any other TV show. Oh, but nice. yeah, it is nice. But then they also just took the easy way out. 
you were talking about how um, a lot of shows are still predominantly written by men, so they don't have any experience with abortion or being pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, maybe I'm being too generous, but I think that it would be more a reflection of where the culture is at as a whole because they have no experience. So they would just be drawing on like the cultural understanding of what abortion is. And I think we've really lost as liberals, like the, the culture war over Mm. abortion, you know, fast times at Ridgemont high came out in 1982 and it was okay for that character to have an abortion and not tell her parents. I don't think she told her partner Yeah, and it wasn't even like the main plot point in the movie. Yeah. Most people don't think about that as the, point of fast times at Richmond High. Yeah. It's like not that big of a deal in the movie. And then nothing that I wouldn't call it cavalier. I mean it is a significant experience for that character, but nothing since can handle abortion that way. Or even getting pregnant and getting rid of it. Like I I think um it's it's only acceptable now to like respect having a choice but to choose to keep the baby in our culture yeah absolutely that's why we like resort to these arguments about like well we can't get rid of abortion in a time of if the woman's been raped or um in in the case that threatens her life Mm. that's that's like what we've fallen back to is just struggling to defend even that because people won't stand up for abortion and say like oh it's it's okay to have an abortion you're not a bad person if you have an abortion Yeah, absolutely. And going off of that, you know, um, the idea that these male writers don't really and and female writers, too, certainly. I mean, if you think about like why they would prize um, like in Mad Men choosing your career over, you know, being a mother or um, whatever, like it's because the people in that room have all chosen their careers like they work crazy hours like they I'm sure some of them are parents, but like they can't possibly be the primary parent, yeah. you know. Even in Mindy Project, she's keeping the baby, but she is like she's gonna go back to work. Yeah, and yeah, they're still working that out, but yeah, yeah, it's like a major plot line. But the point is, she wants to go back to work because yeah. that's like where you gain some value. Yeah. That's just another cultural understanding we have is like motherhood isn't the most important part of your life and shouldn't be actually. Yeah, but so going back off of what you're saying with um, the, these writers like drawing off of the cultural understanding of like abortion and how I, it obviously has like a negative connotation in our society, right? Like that's why they give a miscarriage to a character that they, you know, where they don't want to change anything, but they also don't want you to like dislike the character. So there's a really great example in The Walking Dead of a really terrible handling of an unwanted pregnancy. Basically, oh, do you want to say something? Do they have a zombie baby? (laughs) No, no. They go ahead and reinforce like the shaming around abortion (laughs) with this plot line. So in season two of the highly popular zombie drama, uh, the Walking Dead, obviously. Lois Grimes, Lori Grimes, a wife and mother, is struggling to survive in the Georgian wilderness when she becomes pregnant. After finding out the news, Grimes swallows nearly a dozen morning after pills. But then, in a fit of guilt and shame, Grimes vomits up the pills. She eventually has the baby and dies during childbirth. For the creators of The Walking Dead, birthing a child in a post-apocalyptic 
Zombieland was a preferable alternative to the guilt Grimes would feel terminating her pregnancy. So in other words, they're implying that there is literally nothing worse than getting an abortion. Better to die with your honor than to live with the shame of an abortion. Yeah, that sounds like it was her redemption was when she chooses to vomit up the pills. Yeah, which, um, you know, is not only like awful in terms of what it enforces, but uh, it's also really worrisome (laughs) that they're showing that to people because uh, it reinforces the idea that a uh, non-surgical abortion can be reversed, which is something that a lot of um, anti-choice advocates also try to claim. So they will tell women like, um, so normally like when you, uh, the morning after pill is a little different, but like when you go um, to like a Planned Parenthood or whatever clinic you go to, to get um, a non-surgical abortion, the pill comes in two parts and you have to take it over the course of a couple of days. These like anti-choice people have like started this propaganda telling women that it's reversible, that you can just take half and then if you change your mind, you don't need to take the other half, uh, which is really just basically endangering these women's lives and not accurate information. So for The Walking Dead to not just like shame the shit out of this character, but also provide this completely inaccurate medical information is like really worrisome. Um, and to me, like the, I don't know, the funniest part of all of this is the idea that these writers thought that a woman trying to survive in a post-apocalyptic land with zombies running around that want to eat helpless humans should have a that she should have a screaming baby that she needs Mm. to nurture with her body like so nourishment options are low so she's not going to be able to like breastfeed so i don't know she's gonna have like have to try to like find formula for this baby all the time it's going to be screaming and endangering her life all the time and again i think it gives this i um gives this idea that like women are vessels for carrying babies and that that like we are not our own person who should you know use our own bodies for our own survival basically like I don't know it's it's like really worrisome to me that this was portrayed as like a selfless choice that she had this baby and I don't know it seems like really like some dangerous work on the part of the tv writers so like I said though I had three things that I thought lead to basically this anti-choice <laughs> vibe on TV, even when they give the, the nod to the idea that you do have a choice. And the third thing that I wanted to mention is that, you know, like TV shows are on corporate networks with corporate sponsors. And every time there's an abortion um, on TV, there's protest and backlash, especially from the Christian right, but even, you know, less like fundamentalist um, type people. Um, and I guess that like it goes back to Maud uh, in the 70s, which was, uh, I believe, a B. Arthur show. Her character is 48 years old and finds herself unexpectedly pregnant. And I I mean, I haven't seen the episode, but from everything I read, it's like a really heart-wrenching episode where she really talks through all the possibilities and all the reasons to have an abortion. I mean, I would imagine including like the fact that being pregnant at 48 is life-threatening and ultimately decides to have this abortion only to have it be so heavily protested that many of the carriers just dropped it and wouldn't show, wouldn't air the episode. And that was right around when Roe happened. I read that it 
was four years after Roe, but I also read that it might have been a couple years before Roe, but that the show took place in New York where it was legal. Mm -hmm. So I'm not totally clear on that. But either way, I think I feel like since then, it's like it's almost like set this precedent where obviously like networks don't want to rock the boat. Yeah. I'm sick of hearing conservatives talk about political correctness when they're the ones who are always throwing a fit over speech and art. Yeah, as soon as it doesn't accord to their worldview, basically. So I guess that was the the main stuff that I wanted to cover with this. Um, Oh, one other thing that I found... Um, while I was reading through some of research on this, uh, showed that um, abortions are portrayed as more dangerous on TV than, than they are in real life, while procedures like CPR are portrayed as more reliable than they actually are. So like we listened to that radio, uh, the, a radio lab episode um, where they talked to doctors and asked them about like, you know, life resuscitating procedures. And most doctors are, you know, DNR do not resuscitate. And they do not want CPR at all uh, because it's more likely to like actually like irrevocably, 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 thank you, (laughs) Uh, like um, hurt you basically, right? Someone's likely to break your ribs, crush your lungs uh, while they're doing it, things like that. And so uh, it's just funny that on any TV show, you know, they'll like do CPR and the person comes back to life. But they looked through 385 abortion related plot lines starting in 1916 and found that the stories of abortion uh, were more likely to show to end in the death of a patient than they are in real life. CPR was more likely to provide life and abortion was more likely to kill. Yeah. To actually end. Than it is. Yeah. And actually for a long time in a lot of the plot lines, the character, if they did have an abortion would ultimately end up dying. Oh, that was, you know, the thing back in the day, though, was if a character does anything that's bad, they can't have a, they can't have to meet a terrible end. Yeah, well, it goes to show you what they thought of where, you know, these writers think of abortion if they, because it's not like we have that strict studio system in the same way, like where it was like, oh, we can't show gangsters getting away with this robbery. Like it's bad for morality. And then also we want to avoid being regulated, right? Like, I was really shocked when we watched, I think it was an older Frontline from a year or two ago, where they talk about, I think, the women's rights movement, unless it was just abortion. And they were showing a lot of the activism, a lot of the people who were fighting for their rights were like Catholic women who had already had five or six children and got pregnant nearing age 50 and just felt that they needed to get the abortion because they couldn't provide for more children. Yeah, and also their bodies probably can't handle it. And it's not good for the baby when you're almost 50. Yeah, the odds of having a terrible disease are much, much higher. Yeah. Yeah, but that's just not something you hear about abortion at all. The dominant narrative is always, oh, it's like a young girl. Okay, so let's uh, start with talking about the debate. And now is pregnant. Yeah, and this is is her punishment, basically. You start. So it just goes Uh, to show you, I guess, that we live in a massively patriarchal Uh, society where... Uh, where the truth is distorted and reality is distorted in favor mirrored back at us and then affects our own actions the first question of the debate absolutely basically so anyway uh, that's last week i think it was my maybe on friday (laughs) for this week a story broke that the sanders (laughs) campaign had stolen data or breached data or it wasn't even really clear yet 
but something bad had happened where the Sanders campaign had access to the Clinton campaign's data when they weren't supposed to. And as a result, the DNC freaked out and took away their NGP van access. And part of the reason it wasn't very clear what exactly had happened, I think, is because a lot of reporters don't really know yeah, what NGP van is, how it's used, why it matters. Like I even read one article where it looked like they had just lifted from NGP van's website the description of what their software is. Which was really funny to see because as someone who's like actually used the software, it sounds a lot better and cooler the way that NGP Van describes it and the way that these reporters talk about it than the way that the software actually works. Like uh, maybe we'll start by trying to get away from sort of the rat race of the uh, campaign season and talk a little bit about what NGP Van is. Basically, it's like this old creaky terrible software (laughs) that has like a lot of people who are very loyal to it because it's been used for years and years but also if you are like a younger person like me and you use it it feels like it was something that's created like in the early 90s and hasn't really been changed since um so basically it's a software it's online that compiles the voter file databases from the various state parties across the nation and sort of cleans them up. I guess they say that they also add some other like layer to it using like some kind of consumer data information or whatever. But honestly, like I never really experienced that part of it. So I don't know. Well, what is a voter file, right? Oh, so a voter file, I mean, it's what it sounds like. It's like your history... It's the history of people who have voted, like, let's say, Democrat in this case, um, and how many times they voted, how often they've voted in previous elections. Like, so it'll value whether you come out for midterms over like presidential elections. If you do, that obviously ranks you as like a stronger Democrat um, than someone who only comes out for generals. It. And it has like your address and phone number and some basic stuff like that. Yeah, it has like all your contact info. Um, Again, it gives you like a ranking of how strong of a Democrat you are from one to five, one being the strongest and most likely to vote. Is that information that's like public that you can just go get? That's a good question. I think in some states it is and in some states it it isn't because I think technically that information belongs to the Democratic Party, but different states see it differently so i okay that's weird so this is like software that is officially tied up with the democratic party's voter database yeah yeah it's really weird to me and no one talks about this and if the coverage on this was better i feel like that's one of the issues that should have been raised is like why is it that the democratic party has given all this what should be, I think, public voter information. And I think in some states it really is public information. Um, But I I think it might not be in all states. I don't know. I'm not totally sure on that aspect of it. But either way, uh, they've taken voter information that's like citizens participating in our democracy and from across the nation that's very valuable and given it to a private company (laughs) and said if you want access to this information as a campaign which every campaign all the way like down ballot to like state representatives and you know very small local offices want it want access to that um information because you have to you have to use it you have to pay this vendor ngp van 
to get access to this information. So the DNC, in some cases, like, I, I think it depends. Like, I think in some down ballot races, like state representative and stuff like that, they might even, like, give it to the Democrat, especially if there's just one Democrat in the race. Yeah. But, but in general, it's paywalled yeah. public information. So they have like a virtual monopoly, literal monopoly over yeah. it, too. Yeah. And the DNC is constantly paying NGP Van to have basically access to their own information. Just yeah. just basically paying them to organize this information. I remember when you were working with it, when you were organizing and you showed me what it looks like. It looks like a Web 1.0 website yeah. with like links there's maybe no pictures yeah no there's like very little interface it's all like text links right yeah yeah it's yeah there's like no interface nothing is cute everything's like yellow and gray <laughs> and like you know i mean it really looks like something like a relic of the past like yeah. and also it's not like it's an expertly curated database right you had to go through and call people to find out who is still alive and things like that, right? I mean, unfortunately, a lot of times that's what happens. So, like, uh, I looked, since I knew we were talking about this, I looked on NGP Van's website, and they say that they update it 200 times a year. Uh, and so it's, like, the most up-to-date and blah, 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 and that they clean out things like whether people have died or not. But, I don't know, in my experience, <laughs> I called way too many people who, uh, it turned out, were deceased yeah. <laughs> former voters. Yeah. Or, like, moved. Yeah, yeah, that happens a lot too. People have moved, the information isn't valid. So that's the other thing about this is that what they're giving you is basically a voter file with some information like contact information, like obviously address, phone number, sometimes email address, a ranking of how likely the person is to be a Democrat or not. Um, sometimes they'll n have a notation about like uh, maybe issues that are important. It kind of depends like on like how like like I used it, for example, in Virginia. And these were like people who hadn't been like activated or called in a long time. And the uh, state party hadn't done a good job of updating the data and so as a result I got a lot of people who were deceased and I didn't have a lot of good information yeah. if you are pulling from national inform uh, data you're probably going to have like a, a better set of information for at least the majority of the voters that you're getting information on but it does depend it does come down to like whether the state parties do a good job of well I have one that. other clarifying question along those lines before you get on to the actual Bernie Hillary issue what so you do a lot of work in the program updating these voters and mm -hmm. stuff, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So um, basically, you st you add in a lot of your own data because it's like honestly, like at least again, this is in my experience. That was a few years ago. Maybe things have changed. I'm not as up to date on this as uh, I'm sure other people. But as well, well, given that it looks like it hadn't changed in <laughs> ten years, I. Well, who knows? Maybe they suddenly really like busted out some effort. Normally when companies have a monopoly, it doesn't get yeah. better. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's the thing is like you get some bare bones information and then you um, use the, the software to contact voters. So you can use it to create a turf map, which is what people call um, the maps they use when they're canvassing when you go door to door to speak to voters. So um, I might 
you know, create a turf map of twos. So that would mean people who are likely Democratic voters, but who haven't necessarily committed to my candidate or to voting in general this election. And I would want to go talk to them to push them to be ones. Every campaign ultimately wants to narrow their universe and slowly get through the twos and you know, talk to them and push them to be ones and maybe talk to some of the threes and get them into their camp. But after that, what you really want to focus on is getting out the vote ultimately, right? There isn't actually that much persuasion that really happens in most campaigns because you are trying to maximize um, your effort of getting out the people who are most likely to vote for you because it usually actually comes down to turnout much more than you know targeting people and changing their minds and like debating with you know you're not you don't want to like spend time at a phone bank debating with someone over the phone about abortion or something it's you're not going to change their (laughs) mind right like yeah it's like the media is always talking about swing voters especially in political elections but that was not your experience organizing that you're out courting swing voters you're out trying to get people to actually come out and vote. Yeah, like if it's very, very early on and you just have a lot of like time for some reason, which has never happened in any campaign, (laughs) but you know, then you might try to focus and you would only focus on like threes, which would be like maybe undecided. But as soon as you start to like talk to a three and you can identify, oh, this person's a four, you just move on with your life, you know? By four, you mean like they're more likely to vote Republican. Yeah. You're just, you're not going to... conservative. Like you start talking to them about um, some issue and they like, suddenly out of nowhere like you're talking to them and out of nowhere they they say something about like the you know climate change being a hoax then you're like oh shit i gotta abort like get out get out of this door or phone call or whatever it is you know like muslims are setting up secret cabals and gas stations they have this plan to infiltrate america with gas stations (laughs) yeah so basically you use this software to create like i was saying like a turf map let's say or you can use it to pull a list for a phone bank um, where instead of going door to door you call people and again you usually pick very targeted lists you call through or like if i knew for example that i wanted to target women and talk to them about where my candidate stands on women's issues or whatever I might do that Um, and then as you gather information through phone calls and speaking to people door to door a lot of times when I would phone bang for example I would identify people who wanted to be volunteers as well or people who wanted to make donations but maybe didn't have time to volunteer so you put all that information in to your voter file so it starts to become more meaningful data than just the, like the bare bones yeah. basics that you got originally so you're entering in that information that you found and saving it and only your campaign has access to it yeah yeah definitely. that always seemed weird to me like they should at least share like if somebody is deceased you can share that with other democrats <laughs> But. I mean, presumably they're like trying to do that. Like I said, that's one of the things that supposedly the 200 times they update this thing a year, they're like trying to fix or get rid of the yeah. dead people. But like I called way too many dead people in Virginia. Like I just feel like it's weird that there's like this competitive, combative nature built right into the system. But yeah. that's a digression. It's I guess. a primary. So I think it makes sense. In a lot of cases, like when it's in most instances when you're running for office it's usually just one democrat and one republican so you don't have um a combative aspect to it because you don't usually have like you know three democrats running for the same state senate seat or something it's usually just one democrat who's running if that a lot of times they go uncontested sadly 
So you start to, like I said, like really create your own data as you go through. And so like when the DNC locks Bernie out from access to his voter file, they're not just taking access away from some software. It's all of his data, all the information well, that the campaign's let's collected. Let's step back a second, sum it up for people who didn't know what the story is because we didn't mention. Oh, okay. So we're talking about how the data is walled off from the other campaigns, but this is like shitty old software. Yeah. Well, they made an update to their system that apparently they didn't test that gave the campaigns access to each other's information. And it's the second time this happened this year alone. So someone in the Bernie campaign noticed, and I guess to prove that it was, a, according to this staffer, what he did to prove that this vulnerability happened, he left a note in Hillary's campaign's voter file. That's uh, in the news. That's what we're assuming happened because the news did not take the time to research the software and see how it actually works. So if you read news stories, it's very hard to figure out exactly what happened. They're like the staffer saved something somewhere that the Hillary Clinton campaign can see it. So when you're using the software, it tracks every single thing you do in the software. As a user, you log in, you have a unique ID. So it's very clear what you've done in the software, what lists you've pulled, what you've saved. So in this case, I think the guy's name is like Josh Uretsky or something like that. And he was the data, whatever, director. Yeah. The data guy. Um, and so he was, you know, they're, they're saying like, look, we saw that you access this and that and you weren't supposed to. And like, we can see your tracks basically right when we look. But what he's saying, I think, is, yeah, I I know. I know that you can see everything that I do. What I was doing was moving around through it so that we could document the extent to which there's this data breach exists, yeah. right? Like, because it's not like they caught him red handed. He knows if I know and I'm not a data director, I'm just a person who did some organizing. He certainly knows that they're going to be able to see what he's doing in the software. It would be so stupid to just blatantly cheat like the incentive to act is you don't even need an incentive to act morally you're being tracked you know like yeah and if you put yourself in that position your records are open to hillary's campaign yeah you want to know the extent of this issue this yeah. technical glitch yeah. the only way you can do that is by playing around in the system to see what's broken so it sounds like that's what he did and there's another aspect of the story that's important that the media misses because they don't know the software you can't download and save anything right well, you can. You can uh, save stuff. You can export lists. But in this case, yeah. the NGP van acknowledged um, in a statement on Friday that some campaigns could search and access, but not export or save or act on voter data of other campaigns. So this contradicts the statement by Debbie Wasserman Schultz, where she claimed that the campaign, in fact, accessed and exported um, mm -hmm. and downloaded the voter file information. Did she say that specifically? Uh, yeah, I think uh, I, I think it was according. I, I read it in a Washington Post story. See, it's so sh it's so shady. It's so suspicious because apparently the Hillary campaign freaked out or the DNC freaked out and used this as an excuse to shut Bernie's campaign out of the system entirely. So they didn't have access to the voter file. They didn't have access to the organizing work that they had done in the platform for themselves. Yeah. And then the DNC was like, "You need to prove to us that you have destroyed any of this information that you have before we'll let you." have access again when as you said ngp van said you weren't able to save anything you could only view look it witness it, it yeah. look at it and the other thing that i haven't seen in a lot of the coverage is that we're talking about a data breach that lasted 30 to 40 minutes yeah. so just the sheer amount of 
things you could see and what note down or whatever in that time it's ridiculous it's so it makes so much more sense that you're looking through to see how bad the breach is plus it's the second one in like six months if anyone is at fault here it's the company ngp van and you know as from my perspective as someone who works in tech and just pays attention to that stuff this happens all the time there's always some breach and somebody finds it and reports it and gets in trouble with the company, with the government. As soon as, there, like there was the guy who found AT&T had like a list of customers just open to the internet and he found that list and showed it to them and they wanted to prosecute. Like he went to jail. He got yeah. convicted and he went to yeah. jail. And so it's it's not just the politics. This happens all the time with security. People don't understand it. They blame the person who found the vulnerability instead of holding the company responsible. But that's a digression. It seems really shady what the DNC did. Well, it is also because um, it's like in the DNC's own contract with the campaigns that if something happens where they're going to like cut off, they're going to like terminate the access, they're supposed to give a written notice to his campaigns and uh, his campaign and wait 10 days to see whether he actually follows through with their demands and they didn't do that they didn't give it any time they just cut off his access and they cut it off on a friday night how many weekends is it until the primary there's not that many weekends no, left like a less saturday, than 12 maybe 10 or something. when you're organizing saturdays before like elections are the most important day for like canvassing organizing events all that kind of stuff, right? Because Sundays, people are out, they're lazy, they don't want to do as much stuff. Saturdays are the most important in terms of your organizing. So the fact that they cut him off, even I know it sounds like, well, it's just one Saturday, like whatever. But honestly, that matters a lot. That would have mattered. I worked like on some very down ballot races, like state uh, house representatives and stuff like that. But I would have freaked out (laughs) for that race if someone had just cut off my accent even for one day like that it's huge Uh, and when you are a campaign that doesn't have as much funding that does and therefore can't pay as many people to canvas and phone bank and whatever for you and you have volunteers that you turned out and you've trained and you got them to come out on saturday and you can't give them turf maps or put them down sit them down to phone bank it's real it it actually creates a really bad relationship between you and your volunteers because they're not going to want to turn out next weekend because they're giving up up a Saturday and now you've wasted their Saturday like it's it's really painful like from an organizing standpoint it's so painful to think about being in that position like it's awful what they did um and also again it's like totally they violated their own contract to do it honestly if this were in like an isolated instance you could be like oh they're overreacting of course they're overreacting but this is this comes when they're having the debate hosted on a saturday yeah the next one is on martin luther king day weekend yeah, I know. it's so clear I that know. they don't want bernie to get his message out they don't want a challenge to hillary that when you take the whole sum of it, it just seems vindictive. I know, especially also when you look at the fact that Debbie Wasserman Schultz was the co-chair of Clinton's campaign in 2008. So hmm, I wonder where her biases lie. <laughs> and in addition to that, this whole story and scandal came out during right 
during the uh, New Hampshire debate in a state where he was leading Hillary. Yeah. So it looks so bad, basically, right? Like all of a sudden there's all this emphasis right when everyone's looking at New Hampshire on, oh, this campaign is dishonest and yeah. cheating. And, you know, they're trying to game the system in favor of themselves. And it's like, no, the whole system is actually rigged against Bernie. Do you know that in Nevada, um, I was just... I was like really upset about this. So I was just reading about some other terrible shit that Debbie Wasserman Schultz has done and the DNC in general and how they just obviously favor Hillary Clinton. In Nevada, which is another primary state, obviously, um, both the Clinton Field Office and the Carson City Democratic Party list the same address, 502 East John Street. Whoa. Yeah, they're in the exact same office. And according to a vice reporter who visited the office, with its walls papered with Hillary Clinton signs and seats carefully arranged for the Hillary for America ribbon cutting, it was hard to tell where the Democratic Party's office ended and the Clinton office began. There were few signs referencing, uh, a few signs rather, referencing Obama and the Affordable (laughs) Care Act. But as far as I could tell, there weren't any that mentioned the other two candidates running for president. That's just shameful. Yeah. And in fact, someone asked the Sanders campaign whether they had been offered offices and their spokeswoman, Joan Cato, said, no, they've they've never been offered any kind of office space for any operations there. And also the DNC finance chair was caught raising money for Hillary Clinton, which is also a direct violation of his contract because it's all Uh, supposed to be equal and fair. Are you talking just Nevada? No, no, no. This is the national DNC. The guy's name is um, Henry R. Munoz III, um, and he was a top fundraiser for uh, President Obama. Then he became the chief of the party's finance operation in 2013, and this past summer he was caught organizing a fundraiser for Clinton in San Antonio, which is a direct violation of the DNC rules. And guess who's supposed to punish him uh, for acting unfairly and enforce the party's rules? Oh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Did she do that? No. But how swiftly did she punish the Bernie Sanders campaign for something that possibly wasn't even nefarious, you know? Almost certainly wasn't nefarious. Okay, but at least from her perspective, this is definitely nefarious. He's definitely clearly breaking the rules by fundraising for Clinton. This, it's very unclear what's happened if you're... Yeah, yeah. The news stories make it sound like Bernie's campaign hacked Hillary Clinton's campaign. Yeah. When they both had access to each other's information. she was so much more willing to swiftly punish the Sanders campaign. I mean, really cripple them. Yeah. And then with the, you know, finance guy, we didn't even hear. No one even heard. There wasn't even a news story about this as far as I remember. So anyway, that's some uh, shady shit that's been going down. Well, apparently what happened was the Bernie campaign was ready to sue and they were getting ready to sue. Yeah. Then the next thing we saw at the beginning of the uh, Saturday debate, Bernie said, you know, thankfully we've been able to resolve the issue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if they and, sued, it would have been so clear. It's literally written. They contradicted their own contract. Oh. Like, there's no chance the oh, DNC wow. had a leg to stand on, <laughs> you know? So they pushed way too hard. Yeah. Yeah. And also, it looks so ugly. Like, they they should realize that. Like, you know, you're really turning off Democratic Party, all the progressives that are your base. Like, you were basically, we were just talking about how most elections come down to turnout. If you turn off your base, who who are you going to turn out? How are you going to win? And anytime there's low voter turnout, Republicans win. So the in terms of, like, the general strategy between this 
turning off your base and completely ceding the political conversation to the Republicans like we talked about last time. How is a, 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 any Democrat supposed to win in the general election? I don't know, honestly. But certainly how Hillary Clinton, the path for Hillary, they're stacking the deck against her in an effort to, you know, help her, <laughs> basically. I mean. Yeah. Um, and Bernie's campaign fired that staffer right away. And yeah, yeah. At, at first I was like, oh, don't do that. Stand up, you know, be strong. It could, I guess it just reminded me of um, Cecile Richards apologizing yeah. for Planned Parenthood immediately, and that just made it look so bad. Yeah. But then in the debate, Bernie looked uh, really s- strong, like uh, like a strong boss leader guy. Yeah, yeah, he did a good job of, I think, maintaining his integrity by immediately apologizing to Clinton and then turning it around and saying, oh, and I also want to apologize to my supporters. You know, this isn't like the type of campaign I want to run and stuff like that which really made me feel like he was trying to say like I'm not this you know we're not cheaters like this isn't this isn't how we do things that's like what Republicans do <laughs> that's not what he said he maintained his dignity I <laughs> yeah. can't help myself though that was good I totally agree with you as usual <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree with you that Democrats are shooting themselves in the foot by uh, making it so clear that they don't want Bernie Sanders and they'd rather his ideas not be heard um what was my segue for that? Well, we're going to talk about some uh, major takeaways that we have from the debate. And along those lines, one of them that I have is uh, there's no such thing as a swing voter. Well, that's not really a takeaway from the debate. That's just something that I feel very, I, f- I have conviction. I have it in my bones. There's no such thing as a swing voter. And there's a study that came out recently. We heard about it from Vox. They have a pretty good article about it that we'll link to. But it's by a political scientist named Corwin Schmidt. And he looked at election data. And uh, if you want to read the whole article, you can buy it online for $38. <laughs> or you can read the summary on Vox.com. Uh, but basically, it turns out uh, people nowadays that identify as independent, it's easier to predict which party they're going to vote for than people who identified as like weakly attached to the Democratic Party or somewhat attached to the Republican Party in the 50s. We can predict people that say they're independent now better than we could predict people that said they're a member of one party or the other in the past, which (laughs) candidate they're going to vote for. So the takeaway that Dr. Schmidt and Vox and most people seem to have from it is that people are better informed now and they know which side they agree with more. But I think what they're missing is people don't mean what they used to mean when they say they're independent. When people say they're independent... They're like, I'm conservative and fuck the Republicans. They don't represent me. If somebody asked us, we would probably say we're independent, but we're not voting for a Republican. I can't imagine ever voting for a Republican, but we don't identify with the Democratic Party. We've I think we've ended up in a place in our politics where they've been courting the middle so much. They're losing votes like they're shooting themselves in the Mm -hmm. foot like the DNC is. So that's my major takeaway from the debate is. Hillary Clinton and Martin O'Malley were so adamant that we are not Republicans. Yeah, Why should you vote for us? We're not Republicans. Yeah. I think people are always misinterpreting polls that way. Pay attention the next time you yeah. hear a poll to see if you think that's the case. I'm sure at least 10% of the people who said they don't like the Affordable Care Act just wanted more, you know, wanted Medicare for all or something like yeah. that. You know, in your role as an organizer, you were telling us you don't even waste your time with people who are undecided. Yeah. You only go after the people who are likely to vote for you if you can get them to turn out. 
Yeah. And all organizers know that's where the payoff is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing I spent the most amount of time doing was uh, making sure that people who were like twos, let's say, for example, knew that like I would ask them what like three issues matter most to them. And then I tell them where my candidate stood on those three issues. So they would identify with the candidate so I could push them to be a one. And then if they were a one or let's say they were a two that I had pushed and now I can tell they're like going to be a one and they were really excited about my candidate. I'd like walk through a voting day plan with them mm. to be like, when are you planning on voting? Do you know where you need to go to vote? What about your husband? If I'm let's say talking yeah. to, you know, is there anybody else here who is of voting age? Can I talk to them? That You know, like <laughs> you're just trying to make sure to ensure that they actually turn out. That's really the yeah. most important part. There's not a ton. No one's trying to convince, like I said, someone who doesn't, you know, support a woman's choice yeah. to suddenly, you know, be like pro-abortion. <laughs> or just pro the Democratic candidate. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was more worth your time to talk to somebody about the minute details of how they're going to get to the polling Absolutely. place than to talk to somebody who is undecided. Undoubtedly. I mean, that was like, there's a, an organization called the Analyst Institute, and uh, they had done studies showing that basically, like, your time is better spent doing this. And as soon as those studies came out, we all adopted that strategy, and no one ever, like, looked back. At the, you know? But journalists and politicians are still obsessed with, like, who the swing voter is going to vote for. It's a more interesting for. narrative. Right. Like, I think in terms of how you frame your story, it and it's easier for them because the way they think about talking to, about being neutral, like, right, they value like, here's this side of things. OK, now here's this other side of things. Right. Like the the way they value being neutral, like then when you're framing your article or your news segment as, as if it's towards the undecided voter, that kind of it like fits right into like the way they try to pretend that all news stories are. All sides of a news story are equally valuable. You know when I decided this was true? You know, is when Scott Walker lost rec re uh, his, he won his recall. Mm. He kept his seat. But before the recall and during it, people were way against him. Yeah. But when it came time to actually no to actually vote, nobody knew who the Democrat was. Mm. I heard him on NPR, and they barely mentioned his name. It was yeah. all Scott Walker this, Scott Walker yeah. that. Of course, Scott Walker won. The whole election was about Scott Walker. Yeah. Who's going to turn out to vote for Tom somebody? Did you know his name? Yeah, Tom Barrett. <laughs> I heard him on the radio. He didn't even talk about what he was going to do if he yeah, got elected. He just talked about Scott Walker. Right? Yeah, yeah, he just talked about Tom Barrett. Yeah. Is that his name? I'm Running sure. for election. Didn't talk about what he was going to do. He talked about what Scott Walker was going to do if yeah. you elect him. That is not a winning strategy. Yeah. For and Even for the Democratic candidates at this what, debate to be like, well, you don't want to elect Trump. Yeah, but also more broadly, that's what the uh, Democrats are doing right now. That's what they've like basically said their strategy is, yeah. is to like not say that much about what Democrats believe or want to do, yeah. but to make Democratic voters fearful of what happens if a Republican yeah. is in power. And because that is that's how they think they won in 2012. Oh, like, really? Yeah, like, really? because of like the war on women and stuff like that. They no. think that Democrats were like, holy shit. I mean, some Democrats were, including me, were like, holy shit, these Republicans are crazy. Like the guy who was like, oh, a woman's body will naturally shut down a, a rape pregnancy yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. Right. Like that was some really crazy stuff. And they had a lot of anti-women rhetoric in that campaign cycle. Wow. And so uh, what the Democrats, when they did their own sort of autopsy, which was like far less vigorous than the Republican one, 
what they took away from that was we just need to like keep quiet about what Democrats believe, do, want. And Republicans are so crazy that they'll like shoot themselves in the foot and we'll just look like the well, yeah. well, then we're the natural alternative. Basically. I am really surprised to hear that because clearly the reason they won is nobody wanted Mitt Romney. Well, nobody on the conservative side wanted him. He was a rich Mormon. He was never going to win. He wasn't Christian enough for the evangelicals, and he wasn't blue collar at all, and people couldn't yeah. relate to him. And he he didn't bluster about his success. He tried to say yeah. that he bought jeans at Costco. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Donald Trump would never say that. He didn't know how to run as a billionaire, basically, yeah. or mil- whatever he was. But Obama had the same problem. All of us who were, I didn't vote in 2008, but all of us who were excited to get him in office expected him to you know, be a progressive and get things done. He had the same problem that Mitt Romney did where his base wasn't excited for him and didn't turn out. It's just that Mitt Romney was even worse for conservatives. They still, on AFR Today, were talking about how bad Mitt Romney was. Well, there you go. Yeah. And I don't know. Republicans have themselves to blame, too, for how crazy their base is. But you still, if you can't get your base out, you're not going to win an election. It's their own fault that their base is so crazy because they've pandered to it for so long. Yeah, I mean, they've really like fed that <laughs> rabbit dog for a long time. And they but they they always did it through dog whistling because they wanted to seem like they weren't quite as morally reprehensible as they were. And so I think that's why then, you know, with Donald Trump, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this, but it's like people think he's saying what we're all thinking, guys. Duh. We all hate Mexicans. We all think Muslims don't belong in this country. So he's brave. He's strong. He's saying what every other Republican has been hinting at for how many years now, but has been unwilling to say outright. Like, to them, that was frustrating, and here's someone who's finally relieving that frustration. We live in Texas, so we know. (laughs) We know what they're thinking. I saw protesters in Houston at the beginning of this year with big banners saying, end Muslim immigration. There were the people who, I don't know, had that draw Muhammad thing going on here. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, I don't know. I'm not surprised to see that going on. I mean, I think like for me, a big takeaway, not just from the debate, but really from this like last year, even a little bit before that, is um, that in general, like whether people are really like sick of how things have been going. I mean, we all talk about income inequality, the 1%. And it's so it's just I think again, to people around the world becoming clear that we've been doing things the same way for a really, really long time. And that system never benefits us. It never trickles down to us. It never actually benefits regular people. So whether it's like Syriza in Greece, Podemos, the um, election results just came out in Spain, Corbyn, exactly. Um, Or, you know, obviously at home here with Bernie, it's like I think people are just so sick of the establishment candidate. So it's no surprise that Mitt Romney didn't win last time around. I think we were already starting to get that feel of like, oh, here's another boring establishment Republican. And then this time around when the election started, Basically, the narrative was, are we going to elect a Clinton or a Bush? And everyone was like, fuck this shit. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. we'd rather elect a socialist or a fascist, but we're not electing yeah. another fucking dynasty, you know? like. And it's the same on the right. I know because, again, we are in Texas. 
I hear these people. I listen to their radio programs. They do not want Bush. They do not trust Rubio. Yeah. They want either Ted Cruz or Donald Trump, depending on the person calling in. Yeah. They're like evenly split between them. And they kind of have a point because if you see, I heard them, I heard the guy from Focal Point, Brian Fisher, talking about the budget deal that um, Paul Ryan passed. And they're upset about it because the people that they elected were telling them, Planned Parenthood, man, they're cutting up babies and selling the baby parts. If you really believe that, you're not going to do whatever it takes to shut down Planned Parenthood, which is just, you know, stand up at least once or twice on the budget deal and threaten to shut down the government sort of a little bit. And he had a bunch of other issues he listed off too. But they know that it's bullshit because the party's out there telling him one thing and just not going through with it. Pretending that they're going to shut down the government or anything, right? Like this time around, especially John Boehner at least used to pay them lip service and used to be like, oh, oh, maybe I'm going to do it. Maybe I'm going (laughs) to shut it down. But now, like Paul Ryan, he's been so like glum about getting this job that he's just like, no, we're just going to put our heads down and get fucking through this. <laughs> and I mean, I guess it worked, but yeah, the the base, obviously, on the right, I mean, we like you said, we hear them all the time and they're not pleased at all. It's not just that they're not pleased. It's like you said, they see their leaders lacking moral fiber and character, basically. I mean, I don't, obviously, I don't agree with them yeah. that like, they should shut down the government over Planned Parenthood or that Planned Parenthood is yeah. chopping up babies. But, you know, that's if that's what you believe and if that's what the politicians that you are electing repeat back to you, then to have those politicians then not be willing to stand up. Yeah. If, if there was some kind of scandal where on the left we like legitimately believed that someone was, some organization was killing babies and chopping them up and then our politicians and leaders weren't willing to stand up for that, we would like, that would be insane. That would be, you would be like, what is going on? So, I mean, I, I can sort, I mean, if you just put yourself in their position and ignore all like the craziness of what they believe you can sort of see how they're just as disillusioned with their leaders as we are with ours definitely so what are your other big takeaways from the debate anything come to mind i mean my biggest one by far is i cannot believe and i guess it's not really even the candidate's fault it's really the fault of the news organizations that host the debates but whether it was the republican debate or the Democratic debate, the like hour plus spent of a two hour debate discussing the Middle East, not even really our foreign policy, because we didn't like talk about South America or, you know, what we're doing anywhere else. Or trade deals, which is probably the biggest deal going on right now with international. Or climate change is a pretty big international problem. And we just had a huge conference in Paris dealing with climate change. So it's not like it wasn't in the news or something. But instead, we just talked about what we're going to do in the Middle East and about ISIS and about who wants to bomb ISIS the most. And, you know, whether it was Ted Cruz wanting to carpet bomb ISIS or Hillary Clinton saying we have to put like what troops on the ground and act unilaterally and shit like that. And she's like, we have to set up a no fly zone over Syria. Yeah. How do you do that? That's you do that by shooting planes down. You'd have to shoot down Syrian or Russian planes. ISIS doesn't have an air force. Yeah. Those are the only planes flying there is the sovereign nation or Russia who they asked to come help. And then we're starting a war with Russia. So great. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Like the amount of time spent discussing ISIS as if people are blowing themselves up and malls every day across America or something like this isn't actually a real issue (laughs) like it's so frustrating to me it feels like we're back in like the days right before the Iraq war 
war when everyone was like ramping up their rhetoric and you know beating the drums for war and no one is no one on either side is saying hey guys like maybe this isn't the best solution maybe there are other solutions maybe it doesn't even make sense for us to go into Iraq in the first place since they didn't attack us you know same thing with like ISIS like do we disagree with the way they live yes do we disagree with their ideas about homosexuality about women about religion about I mean yes you know obviously but does that mean that we need to like bomb the shit out of them no they are not a threat to us in any way the heroin epidemic that they discussed during the debate is a bigger threat to us the gun control issue that they discussed is a bigger threat to us in reality ISIS is nowhere to be seen in the west in our like part of the world I understand like the Paris attacks were ISIS related whatever or maybe they were completely but we're not Paris we're not France we're not even in Europe like and this is the weekend where James Comey came out and was like oh no that that lady no she didn't pledge allegiance to ISIS my bad she didn't do that and we're in San Bernardino and we're still the media is still talking about it calling it the most what the deadliest terrorist attack on US soil since 9-11 when she didn't pledge allegiance to a terrorist organization and in terms of American mass shootings it's like firmly in the middle yeah it's not even that bad for an American mass shooting these are the kinds of things that happen here multiple times a year, but we're freaking out about it well, because they're brown based people, on the I guess. Like every day, we have a shooting at least. But ISIS is not a threat to America. They're yeah. just not. Um, what's the most they could do? Is even on 9 11, it's like, oh, they killed 3,000 people. Yeah. yeah, that's fucking terrible. Yeah. But how many people have died from shootings alone just this year? How about police uh, shootings? But it's not a threat to America. That didn't, they're not invading us. They're not overthrowing our government. It's not a persistent threat where they have the capability to kill 3,000 people every year. That's just not a threat to America. But everybody is okay with saying that it is for some reason. And then the other thing that I really hate about all this talk about attacking Muslims and uh, how horrible ISIS is and how they like radicalize people and that's a threat to us is like this idea Hillary Clinton kept talking about how like, oh, well, we've got to be nice to the Muslims in America. We need them. And, you know, we don't want them to freak out and radicalize. And it's like, no, we need to be nice or, you know, like fair and justice providing to Muslims in America because they're like citizens or humans in America. And that's like the type of country we want to be, whether they're Muslim or Mormon or Jewish or Spanish or whatever. You mean like a country with religious freedom? Yes, exactly. And also a country that welcomes different cultures and people who speak different languages and believe different things. Like I would find it like really scary and weird if all of a sudden people started talking about how we have to like make Macedonians, you know, feel good and stuff because we need them which suggests we're going to use them as like some weird weapon in some weird way and also because you know they might freak out because you know they're like crazy that like implicitly suggests that these muslims are scary and different than us and that's why we got to like keep them close and placate them or at the most generous it's like there's no reason to have muslims here except Uh, we want to counter the narrative of isis Uh, that's shitty it didn't occur to me for a long time that thing where You can't move to Germany and become German. You can't move to France and become French. But the only thing that makes you American is living in America. And maybe things like, I don't know, depending where you live, like owning a car or eating junk food, (laughs) you know, things that anybody can do. And that's what's great about America. And even as much as I get upset about America, it's still like, this is probably where I want to live. Or like Canada or somewhere else where that's the fact that you can just move in and adopt the culture and be a part of it. 
I think that's a a great thing. And it it sucks to only defend having Muslims here because they have some instrumental value to us. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That was driving me crazy. And it kept like that line kept being used over and over again, especially by Clinton. And I feel like she was saying it like she thought she was saying something progressive. But it was I don't know, to me, that was like really horrifying and otherizing, actually. She keeps, that's her thing, is saying things that she seems to think are progressive that are not. I want to say a little bit more about national security and Muslims and stuff, but that reminded me of something else she said. Towards the end, she wants to say that we have systemic racism and we need to do something about it, but all she wants to do is, like, help people go to school, things like that, right? If you want to say we have systemic racism, the only way you know we have systemic racism is if you look at the outcomes between different demographics, and you're like, oh, wait, no, black people are getting the shit end of the stick all their outcomes are worse than white americans so we need a philosophy where it's okay to equalize outcomes not just equalize opportunity if you only equalize opportunity it's it's a fallacy that you can deal with systemic racism because the best you can do is like affirmative action or something like that no actually that is about equalizing outcomes isn't it because it's it's saying we looked at um colleges and ivy leagues and we saw that white people have legacy and they can get in so we do affirmative action to equalize the outcomes i don't know what it means to equalize opportunity i'm not sure it's a, a philosophy that leads to any sort of social justice or economic equality at all. But it's all that Hillary can uh, bring herself to do in her mindset because she's ultimately a Reaganite. Oh, one other thing about Hillary that really pissed us off. She was like, I get more donations from students and teachers than Wall Street. No shit. Like, there are just more teachers and students than Wall Street bankers, but they don't have as much money. How much money are you getting from Wall Street? Are you getting from corporations? This is the shit. You got to be on your toes when you're listening to yeah. politicians. They'll yeah. try to slide something by yeah. you like that. That reminds me of one other thing. We said we were going to talk about big takeaways, and I guess we're getting a little nitpicky now, but I have to mention this. We were talking about how you have to like really be on your toes when you're watching these debates. And one thing that really caught my attention was when they were discussing the middle class and how to move wages up. And Bernie suggested that one of the things you have to do is pass a pay, like a paycheck equality act for women workers, right? Equal Equal pay for women workers. Um, And then later on, when Clinton was saying her piece, she suggested that you need the Paycheck Fairness Act. So I'm not I haven't like looked it up. I'm not 100 percent positive, but I'm pretty sure what that means. She says right here, it means we have transparency about how much people are making. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So so again, this is one of those things where you kind of have to think about it. So if you have an act that guarantees equal pay for equal work, then that puts it the onus on the employer to make sure that when you hire someone, you immediately offer them equal pay as their male counterpart would have gotten, or you just offer like one salary for whoever gets the job, right? Or you get sued, you get penalized. Exactly. It's the law. Exactly. Whereas if what you're providing for workers is transparency, so the idea is like, like, like everybody knows what everybody else makes in the company, or organization or whatever, then you're putting the onus on workers to demand equal pay, right? So what happens is, let's say I'm a woman and I look online or wherever and I see that someone who is in my same position is making 7,000 more a year than I am or whatever. What usually happens or often happens is that workers, especially women, but workers in general, will internalize the blame for why there is a discrepancy 
discrepancy. So a woman might say to herself, well, I did take six weeks off to have that baby. Or, you know, he went to a better college than me. Or, well, he was in charge of that one project that I wasn't in charge of probably because he was a man. But anyway, (laughs) so basically when you put the onus on workers, it makes it much less likely that wages will actually go up. And also this goes right along with um, when you're getting hired, right? Like everyone's always saying how, oh, we need to teach women to negotiate or they don't ask for enough money and blah, blah, blah. Well, why? Why should we? That sucks. Who wants to be male or female in the position of when you get hired, ask, you know, trying to ask for $7,000 more than you've just been offered when you just got a job? Like, is that that's not the way you want to start off any relationship by immediately asking for more? Like, and it automatically benefits the people who don't feel precarious or the people who don't feel like they really need this job. Yes. And it automatically impedes those who do or yeah. maybe are feel less confident in general yeah so if you weren't paying attention paycheck fairness act pay equity for women workers it all sounds sounds good right sounds progressive it's fairness it's fair we're making things fair for women transparency that's a good thing but actually like there's major differences when you get down to it you got to pay attention. This is not just Hillary Clinton. Politicians do this. They'll say fair yeah. instead of equal yes. because they are Reaganite. Yeah. They think the market will fix things. Yeah. We just need to free people up to make the right choices and that will fix society instead of taking a more socialist perspective and actually doing something with the actually government. guaranteeing people fairness through the government, right? Yeah. Like. Yeah. About what we think we mean when we say fairness. About anyway. pay transparency, the best example you have just happened this week. Jennifer Lawrence talking to Larry King. I know I get paid less than my male co-stars. It's my fault. I need to negotiate harder. Maybe one day I'll be able to do that. There you go. It's not your fault, Jennifer Lawrence. I don't know any male movie stars. <laughs> I know your name. Yeah. You should be getting paid twice as much as they yeah. get paid. So, yeah, I, I think we said we were going to talk mostly about bigger takeaways, but no, I, I think one. that's, well, we'll call the big takeaway from that. Pay attention to the nitty gritty. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's a big takeaway for me because it is what makes me super reluctant to vote for Hillary Clinton besides foreign policy is that she adopts these conservative viewpoints. And but then I feel like I can't trust her because what she says and what she right. means feels like two different things. Going yeah. back to people like being pleased with Donald Trump saying what they think everyone that's that's why they like him because they think he's saying what everyone means yeah. right and what he says and what he means seem to be the same thing you know and that's why people like Bernie too right like he's believed the same things for 40 years he's said the same things for 40 years when he says that he wants wages to go up that's what he yeah. means right like we don't have to guess and wonder but what mechanisms is he going to use to actually rig like rig the game in favor of the rich you know yeah. like because usually with most politicians that's that's how it feels and i think that's because that's how it is yeah um that reminds me of bernie had a great answer about trump and he did that thing where like they ask him a question and he totally redirects and doesn't answer the question um were they asking him about they were asking about muslim profiling yeah, they were asking about Muslim profiling. And he turned it around to say the reason that people like Trump is that he's misdirecting the legitimate concerns people have about their lives. They aren't making any more money than their parents did. They don't have hope for their children. And we have like this mass of young men across the country and the world who don't feel that their prospects for the future are good. And that's the force that radicalizes. And then you have people like Donald Trump playing into it and saying, making it worse. Yeah, saying basically, oh. you should hate the Mexicans. Yeah. They're taking your jobs. You should hate them. 
Muslims, they're terrible, whatever. And so instead of saying like, hey, let's work together to change things so that you can have better chances for wage, um, your wages to go up or to maybe not graduate with thousands and thousands of dollars of debt and no hope for the future, you know, (laughs) instead of blaming the Mexicans, let's like work together Uh in our democratic system to change this. You have someone like Donald Trump saying, here's an easy answer. Hate the Mexicans, you know, (laughs) they're criminals and they take your jobs. Like, yeah, yeah. He misdirects their hate onto like this totem, this object. Yeah. Yeah. And that was so cool because it's like, this is something that politicians do all the time. They avoid the question of, but then he did it. And it was probably one of the best statements of the whole debate because it was so concise and such a perfect little thought. Yeah. And it actually made me follow him um, and like, listen, because it was like, because for a second, yeah, for a second, I was like, oh, Bernie, I love like your views on the economy, but where the hell are you going with this? And then all of a sudden he like switched back around and brought it in. And I was like, oh shit, good. Yes, yes, this is exactly right. This is what Donald Trump is doing. Mm -hmm. That's exactly the fear. The economic fear is like what he's capitalizing on basically when he, um, you know, convinces people that they should blame whatever other, you know, insert other here, you know? Um, And I don't know, this might be a bit of a digression. We could cut this out, edit this out if we want. We'll see. But um it's so cool to me because bernie took this trope that politicians do all the time that is bullshit where they evade the question annoying us at the beginning of the debate like you know i forget what they asked like hillary a couple times i don't know 69 percent of americans are afraid of muslims do you think they're wrong to be and she'd be like well martha and then she'd like launch into a whole fucking story about something that had nothing to do with anything until time ran out it's like just say yes or just say no like yeah. you know like whatever you believe just say that like yeah. just answer the fucking or when question. O'Malley was asked about Muslims he's like I know a Muslim man in Maryland oh, he's a doctor he has children that was like after <laughs> the moment had passed too because they were like they tried to move on from he was him. like I want to get out on this I know a Muslim yeah, man yeah, he's yeah. a nice guy yeah. he has children he's not a terrorist imagine that yeah no shit Martin yeah but my point is that Bernie somehow does that bullshit trope that we hate politicians for, but he does it authentically and you know, it's authentic. I think it does, it does get talked about, but I don't think you can downplay how much authenticity matters, especially now you need at least the appearance of authenticity. Obama had that in spades in 2008 and uh, Bush had that. And even Clinton had that and Reagan, apparently people believed he was authentic. I don't think you're going to have a president Rubio, even if he gets the nomination because he he puts on that fake voice, like a Kennedy voice, oh, yeah. and O'Malley does the same thing. I don't know what kind of voice O'Malley is trying to channel. I told you at first he it was, was like, quavering. I know, and... I was like, he's like a like time traveling carnival barker from the nineteen forties yeah. or something. But then I was like, no, it's like the eighteen forties. He's like getting all weirdly grandiose within like the way he starts mm-hmm. phrasing his um sentences it's like from another time i i don't know i don't know yeah. what he's trying to channel or yeah. or do it's not even a kennedy like it's <laughs> i don't know i don't know why people take ted cruz at his word because he is so fake yeah but on the other hand there's all these interesting stories about his time in college that you should look up if you haven't read them and he was basically like the weird kid in your dorm yeah, at yeah. college that Nobody wanted to hang out walked with Walked around in a paisley robe by the girls' bathroom yeah. and stuff. Just <laughs> it's cringeworthy. Yeah. But that actually makes me feel that he's more authentic and actually makes me believe him more to know that he's just a weird person and maybe that's why he comes off so weird to me. Yeah. But I, you still can't trust what he says because he's so 
apparently part of the things that came out about him in college are nobody trusted him because he was so ambitious. He learned tennis just to meet somebody so that he could meet somebody to help him get the clerking job for Rehnquist. Like he would, he does things like that. Uh, One story he got, um, he was giving a girl a ride home or something like that. And instead of trying to even chat her up or like, you know, make friends, the first thing he asked her is like, what are your SAT scores? You know, what are your grades? It's like, what can you do for me? Like, am I, are you worth my time? It's bizarre. But knowing that he's bizarre makes him seem more authentic to me. So I could see him being a nominee and actually being a threat. And Trump people believe he's authentic. Um, Obviously, Bernie's authentic. And I think there were two moments in this debate that one of them I have to give Hillary for. I think she appears, she is authentic, even if you can't even believe or understand what she's saying about policy issues all the time. She has that appearance of authenticity. Does she? I think I think she really, really does me, a lot of not the time. at all like I think she's getting a lot better at it I think she I think I've noticed a marked improvement as well it's not even that she's getting better at being more authentic she just seems more comfortable but I don't know there's just something about her that really constantly feels like maybe it's the way she's like her hair has to be perfect her outfits are always that like weird long top coat like <laughs> thing over a but that's her authentic self now in the public eye. I guess so. But the idea, I, what, I, what I mean is, like, she, she meticulously doesn't wear pantsuits, for example, because she was mercilessly made fun of earlier in her life and stuff like that. It's like everything's so, oh, yeah. like, put together and focus grouped. And, you know, they thought about, oh, beige, this is the color we're doing this yeah. time or last time navy like everything has to be i know that other politicians do that too i know it's not fair to scrutinize women more than men for what they wear or their hair and that it does happen and that she needs to be aware of that as a result i get that but like she just feels so carefully polished all the time that there's no room for authenticity i forgot about that thing where she slips into different accents when she's in different parts of the country yeah yeah but i guess i don't know I, I think she's doing a lot better. And maybe it's just that Martin O'Malley made her look so good. Because <laughs> he was ridiculous. Yeah. He's, he's so fake and awkward. Yeah. It's bizarre. She had one moment that was really good, though, and authentic. She was asked about gun control. The moderator asked, him, asked her, most Americans say more guns keep us safe, not less guns. And she started talking, talking, and we were like, oh, my God, just say yes. Just say yes. And I think the moderator had to ask her again, but she was like, or, I mean, she was like, no, more guns don't make us more safe. She just outright said it. Yeah. That's what I was saying to you the whole time. If she would just answer the question straight, like yeah. she would come off as so much more authentic because yeah. it'd be like, oh, this is what she thinks as opposed to, oh, she's telling us a story to lull us along until the time passes. And then we've already forgotten what the question was. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, um, I appreciated it, though. And it would have been nice if she did a little bit quicker, but she was still pretty strong on it. She said arming more people will not keep us safe yeah. that's pretty unambiguous yeah, yeah you know oh god san bernardino attack it pisses me off that people are like gun control would not prevent would not help us with this they legally bought assault weapons yeah. if there's one thing you want to do to help prevent an attack like this stop the sale of assault weapons yeah oh god uh, but bernie's moment that was like this was really cool um, the moderator asked him, 70, 77% of Americans don't think the government can keep us safe from a lone wolf terrorist mm. attack. It's horrible fear-mongering. And of course they can't. Also a horribly phrased question. Like, yeah. It was like, what, what are you trying to say here? 
But it's not even just Muslims. Did yeah. they keep us safe from Timothy McVeigh or the Unabomber? Or no. Or the guy from Planned Parenthood that just shot up Planned Parenthood? Or, or the DC sniper yeah. in Columbus Carlson when we were younger? sniper. Yeah. Uh, shooter. Yeah. yeah. No, of course you can't. Like, if somebody comes up with something in their own mind, no amount of spying is yeah. going to help you get that. And he said, I'm in that 77% of Americans. I don't believe the government can keep us safe yeah. from terrorism 100% of the time. Yeah. And that was super nice to hear. Yeah. That felt very, not just authentic, honest. All right. Uh, that's, I guess that's our major takeaways from the debate. I wasn't even sure we'd have that much to say about it. I, I could say more, Jesus. It was, some of it was really depressing. There's too much. I have a note here that says, O'Malley, we cannot allow safe havens. And under yeah. it, I just wrote straight Bush. Yeah. Both of us were just, I mean, I'm pretty sure Bush said that, like, yeah. after 9 11. Yeah. The foreign policy bit was really depressing. Bernie did a good job of actually saying, at least, that, you know, we shouldn't be policemen of the world and that every time that there's a conflict in the world, by the way, it's the American taxpayer who is funding, like, fighting for, you know, whatever, against that conflict, for that conflict, wherever the fuck we stand yeah. on the conflict, even when we don't know where we stand on the conflict, like, in Syria yeah. and stuff. And God, that reminds me of something else that pissed me off so much. But before that, Bernie keeps talking about how we have fucked up South America with our policy of intervention. Yeah, when and is regime the, change. And regime change. When have you ever heard a politician say the truth that America caused these dictators like Pinochet. Yeah, no, never. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And for any liberal who's like, he's not liberal enough for me. I know. Fuck you. Please <laughs> register to vote and vote for Bernie. Nobody has ever been this good of a presidential yeah. candidate in my lifetime. Yeah. That's for sure. We didn't watch the debate right away. And I saw some people talking about it on Twitter and complaining that Democrats always talk about the middle class, the middle class. What about poor people? What about helping poor people? Oh. Bernie goes out of his way to always say working families. Yeah. He is about helping the lower classes, yeah. including the middle class. Yeah. He's not saying we need to be a nation of middle class people, which is a fantasy that will never happen. Yeah. He's saying we need to help all Americans, working families, basically. Yeah, I think working families implies working poor, you know. Yeah, absolutely. But the things that pissed me off so much, first of all, we need to stop calling America the homeland. I know, I know. It's, like, gross. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And something you said reminded me of this, like, Hillary and O'Malley, 9-11, 9-11. Oh, I, I was the first mayor, governor, the after 9-11. I think he called himself the first post-9-11 mayor and governor something like that yeah. i was like what are you talking about like in, in maryland yeah what did 9-11 in maryland have to do with each other <laughs> not to mention like elections are held at the same time for everybody so there were lots of new mayors that came out whenever the fuck you got elected like yeah. i don't know i don't i they must his campaign must have thought that was like a great buzzword but i like legit i'm not even trying to be cute i legit have no clue what they are talking about Oh, and Hillary is like, ah, oh, I was the senator for New York after 9-11. Yeah. These people. Chris Christie. I was I was there for 9-11, basically. Wow. I was in New Jersey. I was a prosecutor. And in his mind, he was there on the ground. And let's not forget the number of times that Hillary, Hillary Clinton has said now uh, that the reason Wall Street donates to her is because she was like the senator yeah. after 9-11. That wasn't just during the debate. She's used it multiple times really? since then. Yeah. Jesus. And the Democrats, I mean, the Republicans during their debate, I forget which candidate hit her on it and said how like she had disgracefully said this thing. Yeah. And I was like, you're not wrong, buddy. You know, yeah. 
uh, these people though it's oh i was in the halls of power after 9 11 yeah. oh how could i ever thank yeah, you for your I, bravery enough like i existed and gained power for myself yeah. after 9 11 clap for me <laughs> <laughs> you know? great yeah how can i ever show my gratitude that you were running that you took gone. away rights increased spying you know involved us into like two quagmires in the middle east yeah yes, that's the thing that. hillary's pushing for war and she wants to applaud her own courage for being a senator after 9-11? Yeah. I don't get it. You are literally talking about bombing people. You know families are going to die. Children are going to die needlessly. Yeah. Well, what the fuck did Martin O'Malley then? I mean, like, you were you want us to applaud for you being a mayor after 9-11? <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so irritating. Stop talking about 9-11. Like, yeah. I think, is that basically... Uh, I think that's basically a podcast. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. Well, that's our uh, take on the debate and us getting our frustrations out about it, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so hopefully you enjoyed it. and what? Hopefully you were really pissed off listening to the debate, too, yeah. and hearing other people complain about it. It's gratifying. And pay attention to the words. You can never yeah. pay attention to the individual word choice of Hillary Clinton enough or Rubio or any like really experienced politician. Yeah. You know, using fairness instead of equality. Yeah. That's cunning. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's the end of the Cold Pizza Party podcast. We probably won't podcast next week because of Christmas and whatnot. Or maybe we will because we have time off. We'll see. <laughs> Uh, but either way, if we don't, um, you know, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, <laughs> Seasons Greetings. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to a local radio show. Did I tell you that plays pretty cool music, okay. like indie stuff? But then the host got on and was like, oh, what's with people getting upset when you tell them Merry Christmas? <laughs> it's like, oh, not listening to this show anymore. <laughs> We're in Texas, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you never know when somebody around you is going to like... People know we're in Texas by the end of this podcast, baby. <laughs> <laughs> you justify that so many times. Yeah, all right. Okay, so anyway, uh, and also, obviously, Happy New Year. If we don't talk to you guys before then, may you have lots of joy and luck and success. That was, that was very nice. Yeah, I'm a very nice person. <laughs>